going to be preaching this morning from the book of Romans. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles with me to the 11th chapter of Romans, reading the last verse, Romans 11:36 says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And let me back up, if you have your Bible open there still, let me just back up to verse 34 and, and start again. For, for who has known the mind of the Lord? That's a great question, isn't it? You know the answer, don't you? The Lord knows <laughs> what's in the mind of the Lord. It's ours for us to find out. Thank the Lord he tells us. That's what this whole book is all about. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or, or who has been his counselor? I'll bet some of us have been his counselor at times. Oh, Lord, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Have you ever gifted God? Do you ever think of yourself in anything that you have ever done as gifting God that he might be repaid? For from him, he is the source of all things. And through him, he is the instrument of all things. And to him, he is the reason of all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Praise the Lord. If you're visiting with us today, this is week five of a five-week series where we've gone through the uh, solis, the, the alones of the Reformation, the scripture alone and grace alone. Faith alone, Christ alone, and this week we come to the glory of God alone. And so we come to this particular text. Paul's words are a declaration of purpose. That God is not only the who of all things, he's not only the how of all things, but he is also the why of all things. The why of all things. So just... Just a, a, a light conversation this morning. I'm going to spend the next 30 minutes explaining the reason for everything <laughs> and why there is something instead of nothing. But it's something that is a, a beautiful attribute of possessing the Christian faith and looking to a God who declares himself to be the reason for everything. Because it doesn't matter what the perplexity that we experience, no matter the complexity of our lives and the, the incomprehensibility that we feel that God is sometimes in her ways, we always have this to say, this confidence in this purpose that in everything God does, I am confident that all of them find a path equally surely to the glory of God. All of us can say that. That's not something that other people can say. And Paul isn't stating in this particular verse how it is that God saves us. I love the, the notes in the ESV study Bible, which I personally use a lot. And, you know, with the note in the bottom and looking at the verse, what does it mean? The note for verse 36 simply says this, see chapters 1 through 11. <laughs> yeah, that's where the Apostle Paul describes how it is that God saves us. That's not what Paul is talking about here. Paul rather is stating, why would God do so? The question here isn't, if God has saved us, or how has God saved us? The question here is, why would God save us? Why indeed? What is the reason? The reason God saves us 
is to get glory for himself. He's not only the source of all things. He's not only the means of all things. He's the end of all things. He's the purpose of all things. He sets himself in all of his glorious beauty, perfection, and majesty at the center of all that he does. God is a glory seeker. He seeks glory for himself. It completely changes the tone of, of the words and how the scriptures open of, of let there be light. It's not merely a, a statement of, of historical reality of light was created by the word of God. It's a statement of declaration of God's purpose. Let there be light. Which Romans, or sorry, Psalm 18, Psalm 19 makes very, very clear to us. Let there be light. Let the heavens declare the glory of God. It's the reason God did anything. To declare something of his own self. God is a glory seeker. The problem is that so are we. <laughs> so are we. The word glory, one of these little five-letter words that we have in our English Christian vocabulary that we don't often always understand exactly what we mean by the word. Do you know what I mean by the word glory? Jonathan Edwards said it's the emanation, the, the radiation, the, the going forth. That's, that's how I understand it. The, the emanation of God's fullness to his sensible creatures that are able to understand it. That's us. <laughs> That's not your cat. It's not your dog. It's not your horse. That's us. In other words, God's glory is that the, the tremendously good news is that, that there is a fullness to God and he does not keep it locked up in the cosmos. The word glory means that it moves. His fullness moves. And the way that it moves is through what God does for us to see. God is a glory seeker. The problem is that, that we also are glory seekers. And 500 years ago, which is the purpose for this series, to acknowledge and celebrate as well the Protestant, what some call, what we're used to calling the Reformation, which wasn't a Reformation, it was a, it was a schism. The church was never reformed, it was divided. So we could call it the, the Protestant schism, maybe. But 500 years ago, People like Martin Luther and others like him realized that at, at the heart of the question of how sinners are saved, how we are saved and, and made to call God our Father is a glory struggle. Two glory seekers, God and us. But God seeking glory legitimately. <laughs> And by the way, he's the only person, only thing you'll ever think about glory in that capacity. In other words, God, as a glory seeker, has integrity right through to the bottom. Because there is no imperfection. There's, there, there's no mar. There, there's nothing to hide. God seeks glory in, in all of integrity and legitimately because he actually, truly, really is glorious. Amen. Hallelujah. He is a glorious God. There's nothing that you will ever know or find out about God that is anything less than perfect. And us and our glory seeking, well, we are vain. We are proud. 
And we are self-deceived about our, our real condition. It's like a, a freight train going into a cloud, this glory struggle. <laughs> one's going to win, right? And one's not really worried about the other. Because one has the legitimacy of power. And the other one just has the airy stuff that just goes when it's even challenged. Luther put it like this, God does not save us in a way that causes us to be pleased with ourselves. I love that. that that's a really helpful phrase. He wrote it 500 years ago. It's very, very much so relevant still today. God doesn't save us in a way that causes us to be pleased with ourselves, but rather that we be pleased with him. Amen. Praise the Lord. That we be pleased with him. So in, in all of the alones that we've done in this series of, of Scripture alone and grace alone, by grace alone, uh, through faith alone, in Christ alone, this last one, to the glory of God alone, addresses the question of motive, purpose. Why do you exercise faith? Why do you get excited about the grace of God? Why would you set Christ before you? For what purpose? With what motive? It's entirely possible, I, I, I'm, I'm gonna hit my cynical pedal here again. No, there's no pedals on the platform, I'll remember to turn it off, but it, I've, I've done this. And it's entirely possible to, for people to talk about grace, to talk of, about exercising faith, to talk about Jesus, but all brought into the house of self. And the motive and the purpose, the motive and the purpose is, is all about us. I've, I learned a long time ago that it's really uh, entirely possible to be completely sincere and sincerely wrong. You know, it's, you can be in the right car, a, a perfectly legitimate good car, that has the power and the, and the ability to, to go places with the right people around you, even on the right road, but go in the wrong direction. And you're not going to get very far. Was it a train in India that went 160 kilometers on the, going the wrong way this week? And people died. Very, very sad. But the people had the right ticket, just that the train was going the wrong way. So here's the main point that I would like you to take home with you today if you're wondering if I was ever going to get to it. Here it is. This is what I would like you to, to stick in your head. I'm totally amazed how much Bill had stuck in his head from a year ago. Wow, were you impressed? That we are the objects of God's redemption. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. We God redeems us, and we are the object of all that God does in order to redeem, and all of, all of the display of his love and his mercy and his grace. We are the object of God's redemption, but we're not the purpose of the redemption. God's glory is the purpose. And our redemption serves the greater purpose of God's glory. And that doesn't make our salvation less secure, it makes it more secure. Because there's nothing that God cares more about than his glory. Our happiness isn't the ultimate goal. But God uses his ways of making us happy in him 
to serve the ultimate goal and the reason for everything. And I have two simple points. These are all by way of application. I th believe these are, are huge pastoral subjects that I'm talking about. And people need to figure it out. We need to figure it out. I've had to figure this out over the years of, of walking with the Lord, knowing the struggles in my own soul and heart and mind. And I believe there's reformation needed. The first point is this, that there's a paradigm shift that happens in a, in a person's life that goes from uh, our Christianity fitting in with our cult of self to the awe of God. And that, that's a huge paradigm shift. It's a bump in the road for some people. For some, it's just an outright barricade. The second one is this, that a sustainable path to lasting godliness, reasonable godliness, understandable godliness comes from this. That God is the reason for everything, including our own salvation. First of all, the paradigm shift. Purpose changes everything. Motive changes everything. In a culture where everything seems to serve the life purpose of self-fulfillment, and I think that's the, the culture in which we live. We, we have a huge arsenal of things, of, of, of stuff around us that we use to serve the life purpose of self-fulfillment. So it's easy to see that religion and the message of God's love. God loves you. The message of God's love could be brought into the arsenal of instruments to serve the goal of self-fulfillment. God loves you. Praise the Lord. God really does love you. You will never know a better lover. You will never know a more faithful lover, to be sure. But, listen to this, that God loves himself more. God's love isn't an, isn't an instrument in your hands to serve your purposes. God's love is an instrument in his hands to serve his purposes. And the scripture is replete with this from, from beginning to end that, that really it is, I'm sorry to tell you, my creatures down there, it's all about me. I love the verses in Ezekiel chapter 36 when, when God promises the new covenant. I'm going to do something completely beyond your imagination. I'm going to pour out my spirit on you and I'm going to completely change your situation in Ezekiel chapter 36. But God says this, I'm not doing it for your namesake. I'm not doing it for you. I'm doing it for my own name's sake to get glory for myself. Listen to this. This is what... This is what the prophet says. Thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. And later he says, through you, I will vindicate my holiness before their eyes. And, and, and all of the nations will stand in awe about what I have done in you and through you, but all for me. And the paradigm shift is this, to understand that, that God's glory is the reason for everything. But it doesn't diminish our understanding of God's love for us. It makes it all the more secure. Because in his love for us, God is looking after the things that he most cares about, which is his own reputation. Now, 
I maybe have dug myself a hole that I'm trying to dig out of. Many people recoil at this, right? Who wants a glory seeker? I mean, it just leaves a bad mouthfeel, right? <laughs> You've met a glory seeker? <laughs> sure, we've all met glory seekers, and you just think, well, how could you take something so, so disgusting and so soiled and attribute it to God? See, in our human experience, we've, we've never encountered perfection. You've maybe met some people who think that you have encountered perfection by meeting them, but I guarantee that we've, we've never met perfection. God is not conceited. God is not arrogant. God is not proud. Arrogance is the pretense of greatness. That's what arrogance is. <laughs> there's, no, there's no pretense in God. God is not great. He, he is greatness. God is not mighty. He is almightiness. God is not wise. He is wisdom. There is no pretense in God. God is not conceited. He's not pretending to perfection. He's not deceived about his beauty. Luther wrote to Erasmus, one of his favorite pen nemesis is a Roman Catholic scholar. And he says this, he says, your thoughts about God are entirely too human. God isn't understood in a trajectory of human greatness. With a, a little baby, actually a little baby right there. The bottom end of the trajectory, weak and small and, and helpless and, and right through the there's, there's, there's me somewhere down on that bottom end of the scale. And, and then Superman up here. And God, well, he must, be, he must be like above that. God is not understood in the trajectory at all of, of, of human greatness. He's God. He's not a creature. He's divine. And we just have to, in my own life, I just had to say to myself, get over it, Barry. God is great. And he's going to get glory for himself. It's not all about you. Wow, what a difference it made. You know, we cast the guys, or criticize Moses for his unwillingness to speak about the Israelites going back into Egypt where God says, go, you'll be my mouthpiece. And Moses over and over says, no, I, I, I can't do that. And I've only ever heard Moses described as, as in these terms of Moses, what a loser he was, man. You know, how many times does God have to tell you? He simply wants you to go and speak to the Israelites. He's going to be with you and help you. But I've been thinking about it more recently. And I think, you know, the Moses saw something that we have no way of, of imagining what it was like for Moses to witness God. And what Moses was simply saying was this, that there is no way that my mouth can articulate what I have seen. Which was true. Absolutely true. Every, every prophet has said the same thing all through the ages. Every preacher needs to understand it. And then, nevertheless, God says, yeah, but, but you're going to go anyway. And I'll actually do the stuff that, that will speak to Pharaoh. Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest theologians ever to live, 
hundreds of years ago, 1750, just before the American Civil War, wrote a really helpful explanation of, of all of these things. I'll try to pass it on to you in plain words. He says that our, our happiness isn't the reason for everything. God's glory is. But the two objectives are connected. Our happiness and, and God's glory, they're, they're, they're not mutually exclusive. They're, they're connected. And because God has purposed to get glory, it's for that very reason that God has purposed to get this glory that we can be so sure of our salvation. God's reputation is attached to it. Reading through the book of Exodus, that's why these thoughts about Moses are in my mind. I've been reading through perhaps the all-time greatest Old Testament story that illustrates for all of the prophets to come, and including the book of Revelation, to talk about why God does things and what it's like to be delivered and for what reason God delivers. The Israelites in Egypt, in slavery, in bondage. And God says, I'm going to deliver you. But more than deliver you, I'm going to get glory for myself over Pharaoh. Talk about a glory struggle. It was God and Pharaoh. I am going to, through my deliverance of you, I'm going to get glory for myself over Pharaoh. And that didn't make their deliverance from, I'm going to say it again, that didn't make their deliverance from Egypt less sure. It made it all the more sure, the fact that they weren't the ultimate end of the exodus. God's glory was. And there was absolutely no chance that their deliverance from Egypt could ever fail because God had purposed and determined that he would demonstrate his glory through it. But get out into the, out, out, out of Egypt and they're on the side of the Dead Sea. And what do they say? They say, oh no, Moses and all of his fierceness and all of his army are coming and the people are crying out that why did you get us out here in the first place, Moses? And this is what God says to the people. He says, Moses, tell the people to be quiet. Literally what it says. Tell them to be quiet. I won't use stronger language. I'd love to, but it says, be quiet. And walk. And you will see, not your own strength, not your own dominion, not your own power, not your own wisdom. You will see the glory of God, because I'm going to get glory over Pharaoh. What you have to do, you have to walk through dry ground. And imagine... Well, you can read about it, Exodus chapter 15, the dancing and the celebration on the other side. As the floatsome in the Dead Sea is the most fearsome army on the planet of the earth that is now entirely destroyed because of what they did, no, not because of anything that they did. Jonathan Edwards said, the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. It's not that Luther or, or Edwards or anybody believe that our wills are not engaged in salvation. Of course our wills are engaged in salvation. But they believe that it's because of God's purposes and work that we're able to. All the glory goes to God. And they sang this song. God has thrown, God has thrown the horse and rider into the sea. But they get three, three days out into the desert, and guess what? You know, the single most accurate evidence that we don't get it? Murmuring. Three days into the wilderness. What in the world are we doing here, Moses? We don't like it out here. 
And they woke up and they realized this is the bump in the road that I was talking about. They hit this, this bump in the road, literally a bump in the wilderness. That they, they woke up and they realized, oh, it's not about our happiness. It's not all about our comfort. That this is actually a glory project. And when they understood that it was a glory project, they wanted nothing to do with it because their own comfort was more important to them. They would rather live in slavery than participate in God's glory project. This is what the book of Revelation is all about. This is why the book of Revelation is so tremendously powerful and such a treasure for us because it, it attaches the, a, a need for the church, just like those children out in the wilderness, out, out in the desert, who had the need of perseverance that the book of Revelation describes in its epistles in the first three chapters. The need for perseverance, the, 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 the need for obedience, the need to endure suffering, the need to overcome temptation, and it, and it attaches all of those things that are called upon God's people. Aren't you glad the book of Revelation doesn't end in the third chapter? It doesn't. And it goes on, Moses, or John says, this is, this is what you need to see. And he, and he, and he, and he, and he rips oh, heaven open for them. And he says, you need to understand that what you are going through right now is attached to something that is going on in the heavens above heavens. And the seraphim are bowing down before the throne and saying things like this, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. You need to know that, that what, what is going on in your life is attached to this you can't separate those letters from the vision. That their salvation ultimately was tied to God's glory project. And he will get glory for himself. It's a wonderful way that the book ends. The second thing is a sustainable path to godliness. And I'm making an, an, an assumption here that, that, that we care about godliness. Godliness is a word that comes very naturally out of these, this phrase to the, the glory of God alone. It is a life that is lived Godward, not any other direction, not, not selfward, not, not any other way but, but towards God. But you see, godliness isn't sustained or even made reasonable by pride or, or fear. And you'll see it all the time. The people are, are they're, they're genuine, they're sincere, they, they want to live godly lives, but, but what's driving it is fear. Fear is an awful taskmaster, so is pride. And they're dead-end roads, you're going the wrong way, even if you think you're in the right vehicle. Awe, majesty, a captured heart is the path to godliness. There's a reason why Proverbs says that the wisdom comes by the fear of the Lord. You have fear of the Lord, you understand wisdom. Those who see God's glory, who are expecting to see God's glory, a couple of things happen in their life. Number one is that obedience isn't coerced, it, it becomes voluntary. What a, what a liberation from pride and fear. You're not trying to keep up appearances. You're not trying to just keep yourself out of hell. You have a heart that is captured by majesty. And you don't despise God's path or see how close you can get to the edge of them. You want more of them and all of them. Because your heart is captured. Secondly, that those paths are more intuitive. They're not foreign to the person who grasps the glory of God. 
They're, they're a reflex. Not reflux. <laughs> a reflex. <laughs> they're a reflex. Lord, how do, I, how do I know your paths? You know, sin is just a symptom of the fact that we, we can't see. We can't see what's going on in heaven. And so often when I speak to people about their sin and, and say, well, let, let's go back to the beginning. There, there, there's something fundamentally that is wrong, that's deeper than your behavior. Always. And it's the need to take a seat. Take a seat before the Lord and wait upon him, call upon him, ask him, show me, show me your glory. And his ways will become intuitive because we're familiar with the perfect way that God saves us. Don't strive with how you think you might participate in your salvation. Give thanks to God for all that he gives you. He displays his perfections there. But you have to ask the right questions. It's not, the right question isn't, will this activity or pleasure make me happy? Rather, the right question is, will this activity or pleasure increase or decrease God's fame? And our lives become attached to his reputation. Now, that might scare you. Like, I sure wouldn't want God's reputation attached to me or me attached to God's reputation. Like, that, that, that's not good for God. But I don't mean it in a, in, a, in a way that God is somehow relying on it or dependent on it. Who's ever given a gift to God? So it's not by our perfection, but rather by our humility and by our faith, our dependence upon him and our genuine dislike. You have a genuine dislike for what profanes the Lord, what mocks him. My experience said, a couple of things are going to happen. Let me just tell you. A couple of things are going to happen if you start asking the, the, the question with regards to your path and your godliness. What, what, what paths will increase or decrease God's fame? The number one is that some people will think you're a legalist. Because you're, you're not asking the question, what, what's normal in this world? <laughs> Now that, that's the only question some Christians ask about God. That is, what, well, what's normal? I'll conform to what's normal. What is everybody else doing? Or even, what are other Christians doing? That's not the right question. And so some will think you're a legalist. Well, you know, come on, man, everybody's doing it. And, but you're asking the question, not what are people doing. You're asking the question, does it glorify my Savior? I'm not going to go into details, but... You'd probably just imagine kinds of things and people will say, oh man, you're over the top. You're completely over the top. Well, the second thing is that you'll be considered worldly. Those are, those are two great options, right? Legalist or worldly? Mr. Legal or Mr. Worldly? Ever read Pilgrim's Progress? Mr. Worldly, because you're, you're, you're guiding your life and looking for paths, but you're not asking yourselves, what are the church rules? <laughs> what, what, what hoops do I have to jump through? What measure of pretending is required in order to be accepted around here? 
You're asking this question. You're asking, what can I do? What pleasures can I enjoy and genuinely, truly give thanks to God for? That's the question. And if you can answer that with an affirmative, then I'd suggest you're on the right path. Even though some will think you're, you're out there. The Apostle Paul says something amazing in Corinthians. He says, do everything. Yeah. Everything. Not just the religious part of our life or, or the, the Sabbath day or the Lord's Day part of our life, but, but everything. Do everything. Everything has a path to the glory of God. If you can do it and give thanks to the Lord for the ability to do it and for the beauty that is witnessed in doing it, then it gives glory to God. Jesus says, this is how you bear much fruit or how my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. When Jesus prayed, he says, Lord, our Father, glorify yourself. He didn't just say, Lord, okay, I'm here. Now I'm ready. Let's save these people. He says, Lord, glorify yourself. It's awesome. The bottom line, though, that is that, that God's glory must be on your radar. Your grasping of his beauty, the sufficiency of his love for you, the almightiness that is shown in the way that he saves you. See, see not only are these, these two things parable of God's glory and us saving, it, it, it is his saving us that is the best path of God doing what he desires to do. So in conclusion, Psalm 115 verse 1 says this, not to us, O Lord, beautiful words, not to us, but to your name, Give glory. Another phrase that was used after the Reformation was a reformed church is a church that continues reforming. You see, these things are they're, they're, they're things in the human heart. They're, it's not a problem with Roman Catholicism. It's a problem with the human heart and the glory struggles and the need for something God-breathed to guide us authoritatively, sufficiently, that we would revel in the grace of God that we would find joy in, in simply looking to Christ for, save, for salvation, for the purpose of him receiving glory. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these words of the Apostle Paul. You are the source, the instrument, the means, and the end of all things. Lift our eyes, I pray, Lord. Heal us of, of anything that is resistant to something that is so perfect. In Jesus' name I pray.